The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 63. And that says, uh, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I will meditate on you in the night watches, because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. The mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Uh, is that, you know, and I was going to ask him that. I, I forgot that he had already read that. And so, I sorry about that. It was okay to read it twice, I guess. But, yeah, I apologize, Bob. I know that I said pick one, and I, I just wasn't paying attention when you read it. So, that's okay. You got a double dose of Psalm 63 today. All right. Okay, our uh, text, sermon text today is Jonah 1. It's verses 13 through 17. So, we're going to finish our first chapter today. And this is entitled, The Sea Ceased from Its Raging. So Jonah 1, starting in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The verses in Jonah today will show us once again a truth which permeates the entire Bible. It is that God is pleased with obedience to his word and that such obedience is displayed in acts of faith. Jonah is being used to make several pictures simultaneously. He's being used to picture Israel, obstinate and contrary to the will of God, until the point that all hope is lost. He is also being used to picture the person and work of Christ. As with all pictures, there will be things which don't match perfectly, and so the underlying truths need to be looked for rather than an obvious one-to-one -one comparison. If everything were exact comparisons, then we'd simply just be reading the story of Jesus. But, as in all such passages in the Bible, there is the type, and then there is the antitype. These types are used to make pictures which lead us to the greater antitype. Such was the case with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and a great host of others. And such is the case with Jonah. 
Today's verses are somewhat similar to what happened to Joseph when he was cast into the pit by his brothers. That account pictured Christ in a very specific, particular way. In a like manner, Jonah will be cast into the sea. From that act, there will be a resulting action. And connected to that is the promise that man is saved by faith. This is seen in our text verse for today, which is from Romans 3, it's verses 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Who is it that goes away from today's passage in safety and gratitude to God? Who is it that God responded to because of their act of faith? The answer is obvious, but there's more than just the surface story. Rather, there's a lot of depth and marvelous detail in these five verses. How can it be that the death of one can be the salvation of many? It's a theme which literally permeates the Bible and which is seen once again in these verses. And so let's jump right into them. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It's verses 13 through 16, and it's rather long. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. And dug down the men to return unto dry land. The verse begins here with and in the Hebrew. But English translations normally choose contrasting words, such as however, nevertheless, even so, but, or instead. And there's a reason for this. The word translated as road hard, chatar, is a word which indicates to dig. This is the last of just eight times that it's seen in scripture. It comes from a primitive root which indicates to force a passage as by burglary. This is the only time in the Bible that it's used in this sense. All seven other times it is translated as to dig, such as through a wall in order to break through it, or even to dig into the pit of hell itself. From this, we can see that these men literally dug deep into the water in order to make headway. Their sails were of no use to them, and so they resorted to brute force in order to find safe harbor. The choice of the word provides us with mental image of these men literally trying to dig through the walls of the waves as if trying to break out of the tempestuous prison that they are in and into safety. It gives the sense of really working hard on their part. The Hebrew is active and it is alive. It is for this reason that many translations begin the verse with a contrasting word like but in order to set off the words of Jonah from the last verse, which said this, this is from last week, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. What we are viewing then is a group of people to whom have been explained the means by which they can be saved from the raging tempest, and yet who are adamant to save their wayward passenger, even at the possible expense of their own lives. In other words, a complete contrast is being shown us between Jonah, who is fled from the Lord in order to not bring a saving message to the entire city of Nineveh and to these pagans who are willing to risk their own lives for the sake of a single guilty man. The contrast is stark and it is striking. Verse 13 continues, but they could not for the sea continued to grow more and more tempestuous against them. 
Velo yakolu ki hayam holek vesoer alahem. And no do they could, for the sea worked and was whirling against them. The same term that was used in verse 11 is again used here in this verse as the sea continued to work and to whirl into an even more tempestuous rage. It grew more and more, and no matter what they did, it was a futile effort for them to pursue. Quite often in our own lives, the seas work against us, and it seems that the harder that we fight against them, the more the waves mount up against us. In such cases, it could be that we are not living in accord with the Word of God. These men have been told what will save them, but they have a conflict between their moral stand and what the spoken word has revealed. In Israel, the Lord mandated the death penalty for certain infractions of the law. The people were not given the choice as to whether they could carry out that penalty or not either. For example, in Exodus 22, we read these words, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. And he who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. If those laws stood today, would we follow through with their punishment? Obviously not, nor did Israel. They found that extenuating circumstances, degrading morality, and outright rebellion against the Lord was more suitable to their tastes than obedience to his word. Israel failed in their own storms of trials and judgment for not adhering to the word of the Lord. And these men, despite doing what is noble, will continue to face the waves until they obey the Lord's word. On the other hand, this also doesn't necessarily mean that when such trials come, that we're being disobedient towards the Lord. We can, in fact, have storms while being completely obedient to him. Instead of trying to make it to a safe harbor on our own, we need to evaluate our lives and align them with the word. If that is already the case, then we need to come to the Lord with our burden and ask him to carry us through it. Verse 14, therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, Vayikreu el Yehovah vayomeru, and cried out to Yehovah and said. The words make it apparent that they honestly believe Jonah's words, and it is Yehovah who has sent the storm against them. As Jonah previously explained to them, he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. They have come to accept this as it was spoken to them, and thus they possess the knowledge that because he is the creator, he is also the one who controls the creation. And so they no longer cry out every man to his own God, as in verse 5. Rather, they collectively cry out to the true God. The raging of the winds and the billowing of the waves are caused by him. And therefore, Jonah's other words must then also be true. Jonah has brought this plight upon them. In order for it to end, he must be cast over the side of the ship. Verse 14 continues, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Ana Yehovah al na noveda benefesh haish haze. We beg of you, Yehovah, no we pray perish for soul the man this. If we step back for a second and look at Jonah as a type of Israel as a whole, compared to the pagans here and elsewhere in the story, we can see the strong and obvious contrast between the two. There is the stubbornness of Israel, but the complete willingness of the Gentiles to accept the word of the Lord to do what is right, and to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. These Gentiles have only been given a very, very small insight into the nature of the Lord, and yet now they call out to him by name, yielding themselves completely and wholly to him. 
In their cry, they use a word which is rather rare in scripture, ana, being seen just 13 times in the whole Bible. It is a contraction of two other words, ahava, which means love, and na, which means basically please. In essence, I beg of you. It is a begging which would come from the soul of a man in a deep and heartfelt petition. The word is directed to Jehovah, understanding that he alone can grant the petition which has been made. This is the only time that this word is used by someone outside of the covenant line of the people of Israel. Despite being pagans, their cry to Jehovah is heartfelt and it is sincere. The petition is for the sake of their own lives being granted to them for complying with the spoken word against Jonah, which will result in the taking of his life. What is known to them is that in the taking of another's life, their lives would thus, under normal circumstances, be forfeit. Though pagans and outside of the covenant line who lived under the law of Moses, the memory of what was spoken to their ancestor Noah remained with them. Here's what Noah was told in Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Understanding the consequences of this, they now beg for mercy. Verse 14 continues, and do not charge us with innocent blood. And not lay on us blood innocent. The adjective naki or innocent was first used in Genesis 24 verse 41. This is the last time that it's going to be seen in the Bible. It indicates being blameless, exempted, or free from guilt. Here we see a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Pilate washed his hands and declared Christ innocent as is seen in Matthew 27 verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. That's going to become more important as we go through the rest of the book of Jonah. They see Jonah's blood as innocent, and yet they understand that he must die in order for them to live. The passage looks back to Genesis, indicating that they still intuitively understood the words of the Lord to Noah. Guilt is reckoned to anyone who would shed man's blood. However, the circumstances of their situation called out that they not be charged with this case. And so it also looks forward to Christ, who takes away the guilt through his death. Albert Barnes precisely states the situation of these men. Here's what he says. And lay not upon us innocent blood, innocent as to them, although as to this thing, guilty before God, and yet, as to God also, more innocent, they would think, than they. For strange as this was, one disobedience, their whole life they now knew was disobedience to God. His life was but one act in a life of obedience. If God so punishes one sin of the holy, speaking of Jonah, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Terrible to the awakened conscience are God's chastenings on some, as it seems, single offense of those whom he loves. Though Christ Jesus never sinned, it was reckoned to him as if he did. To these men, they saw Jonah as innocent towards them, even if counted guilty before God. In the imputation of our guilt to Jesus Christ and his righteousness imputed to us, we see how the perfect Christ corresponds directly to the guilty Jonah. This is how the Lord saw it in both instances, and therefore his will must be yielded to. This is next explicitly stated. Verse 14 continues, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
ki ata Yehovah ka'asher chafatsta asita. For you, Yehovah, as pleasing to you, you have done. The words are robust and they are impressive. They acknowledge that everything has been according to the will of the Lord. The storm arising, the casting of the lots, the words of Jonah concerning what had happened to him, all of it is as it was directed by the Lord. This word is the same word found in Isaiah 53, verse 10, where it said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, speaking of Christ's passion before he was nailed to the cross. We are seeing the work of Christ in type and in picture. In the Hebrew, the actions are described with three simple words, and yet they form a profession of faith as great as any found anywhere else in all of the Bible. As is pleasing to you, so you have done. Their words are reflective of the words of the psalmist, who was certainly, like each of them, had become a man of faith. Here's what it says in Psalm 135. For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deep places. Because the Lord is sovereign, we have but two choices. We can either yield to his will, or we can buck against it to our own harm and our own shame. The sailors, having become men of faith, conformed their actions according to his will. Again, the words of Jonah are given to show us the stark contrast between Israel and the Gentile people of the world. Contrast their lives, for example, to Manasseh, the king of Judah, who only lived a very short time later. Here's what it says about Manasseh. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin by which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. In the account of Jonah, pagans had concern over a single life, but Manasseh shed innocent blood without a second thought. In the New Testament, we see another contrast. Not only was Jonah innocent in their eyes, even more, he was a prophet of the Lord. They risked their lives to save him, and when they finally had no remedy, they begged for pardon from the guilt of his blood. Jesus speaks out this contrast between their actions towards the Lord's prophet and those of the people of Jerusalem. Here's what he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you understand what I'm saying is that these men had regard for the prophet's life, and yet the people of Jerusalem had no regard for the lives of the prophets whom they stoned, who they killed, whom they sawed in two, and all of the other things that they did to them. The contrast is being made for us to see what is going on in redemptive history. And while we're talking about the guilt of innocent blood, I might as well bring up our own guilt. For 44 years, we have been swimming in a pool of blood to the tune of almost 60 million lives murdered through abortion. The guilt of this nation, and especially the Democrat Party of the United States of America, reeks literally to heaven. May God help us to open our eyes and to see and to turn from what we are doing. I pray that our new leaders, the leaders of this nation now, will do everything they can to end all of the funding to these devils and to overturn the horrifying and ungodly law which has made us ripe for God's judgment. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. Va'yesu et Yonah ve'tiluhu el hayam. And they lifted up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. For the fourth 
And last time in the book of Jonah, and also for the last time in the Bible, the word tool or hurl is used. It was used in verse 4 when the Lord hurled the great wind upon them. It was again used when the sailors hurled their cargo overboard. And then it was used by Jonah to tell those same sailors what they were to do with him, hurl him over. Now, all the hurling at sea is over. The reluctant sailors took the necessary action, and the matter was resolved. We must ask why, though. Why is it so specific concerning lifting up Jonah? In verse 12, Jonah specifically told the sailors to lift him up and cast him into the sea. Why didn't he just say, cast me into the sea? In verse 5, it doesn't say they lifted up the cargo and cast it into the sea. It just says they cast it into the sea. It is because a picture is being made for us. In fulfillment of verse 12, Jesus said the following in John chapter 12, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And in fulfillment of this verse that we're reading right now, we read this in Isaiah chapter 52 using the same word, Nassah, as is found here in Jonah. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. We are being given a prophecy and a fulfillment of the prophecy right before our eyes. Each word is revealing the work of Jesus Christ. Now, in 1831, someone noticed for the first time that Jupiter had a great big red spot on it. Eventually, they figured out that it was a giant storm, like a huge hurricane. No one knows how long it's been there or how long it's going to continue. It just keeps raging on. Anyone who has been in a storm on the sea knows every single minute is like an eternity. Eventually, though, all storms do end. Some lose steam as they come over land. I see that every you know, summer afternoon when they come out over Siesta Key. They get over the water and they die down and then they build up over the hot land. Some storms fade out from crosswinds. I also see that because the storms build up over the land and the crosswinds come here and all the people on the mainland get these nice rains and they get out over the bay and it stops and I can watch it end right at the dock and we don't get a drop until August where you guys are getting, you know, rain in June. I see that as well. So we have storms that end in that way and some storms end by temperature drops and some storms end when the Lord's wrath is appeased. The men Nassau or lifted up Jonah. In Isaiah 52, it says the Lord Jesus would likewise be Nassau or lifted up. Verse 15 continues, and the sea ceased from its raging. And stood the sea from her anger. The word Ahmad means to stand. It is used here in the same manner as we use it in the English today. The storm stood still or it ceased. And so you get the mental impression of activity. The storm was as if it was crouched down, raging and blowing all around the sailors. But as the word of the Lord was obeyed, the storm stood as if at attention and the raging ended. Again, in the sudden cessation of the storm, we have a parallel to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Although it was darkness and not a storm which the writer describes, it lasted during the ordeal and it ended when the life ended pictured by Jonah's being cast into the sea. Here's what it says in Luke 23. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. In Jonah's being cast from among the living, the storm ceased, and that anger of the storm was over. 
In the casting of the life of Christ from among the living, the pall of darkness likewise ceased, and the anger of God at the sin of man was quieted, and it was appeased. The raging sea of God's wrath had ended, and peace was restored. The prediction of Jonah was realized among these sailors of excuse me, of faith, and the promises of Scripture, even from the time of the fall of man itself, are realized among those who, by faith, cast their sins at the foot of Calvary's cross. God's wrath is on the opposite side of the coin of God's mercy. When by faith the sailors threw Jonah in, his mercy could finally be realized. In the same way, when Jesus woke up and exercised his power, the storm on the Sea of Galilee ended. A mere rebuke from his breath and all was calm. Here's what it says. But he said to them, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? And then going back to the account from Acts, we know that the ship Paul was on wasn't saved. It was destroyed on a shoal as the waves beat it to pieces. But all of the people on board were saved. Because of Paul's faithful witness, the Bible says God graciously granted the lives of all who were aboard. Again and again, the Bible demonstrates the power of faith. How we conduct ourselves now affects every single person that we come in contact with, even if we only cross their paths for but a moment. A good question to ask as we drive and lose our temper, as we shop and don't find what we want, as we impatiently wait on hold for the technician is, how will what I do affect my Christian testimony in their lives? If we remember his presence in all we do, we should have no fear, no frustration, and no fret. He is in control and is tending to our every need. As we live our lives, we can repeat the proverb to ourselves. Here's what it says in Proverbs chapter 3. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And feared the men afraid whoppingly Yehovah. What may be the stupidest commentary ever penned on this verse? The Geneva Bible, which usually gives very good commentaries, says the following. They say they were touched with a certain repentance of their past life and began to worship the true God by whom they saw themselves as wonderfully delivered. But this was done for fear and not from a pure heart and affection, neither according to God's word. What do you think Jonah told him to do? Gave him God's word. The fear referred to here is given as a contrast to the fear that they previously held. This exact same phrase, word for word, was used in verse 10 with but a slight difference. In verse 10, they had just heard Jonah's words that he was a Hebrew who feared Jehovah, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now their fear is still directed to Jehovah, but instead of it being vague and uncertain, a fear which leads to death, it is a fear whose object is Jehovah, the God of Jonah, the creator. It is a fear that leads to life. Further, it was wholly in accord with God's word as given to them by Jonah. The Geneva commentary could not be more wrong in this. The Bible is giving us this contrast for a very specific reason, and it is not to assume that there was no change in these Gentiles, but rather a complete and total change in these Gentiles. The fear of Jehovah, we are told, is the beginning of wisdom. They have started on their journey through the fear of Jehovah with a pure heart and a directed affection. 
This brings us back to the word yayin, or wine, which is related to the name Yonah, or Jonah, which we evaluated at the start of this adventure. As we saw, vineyards represent the cultural side of humanity. There are various vineyards, which are various cultures. Vineyards produce grapes, or cultural expressions, and these are mixed together through a mashing process to produce wine. In the Bible, wine then symbolizes the merging together of these expressions into a result. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by the wine. It is as if an act of reasoning is occurring and an intended result is realized. It is, as Abarim says, as if we are seeing wisdom as wine drawn from the grapes of observations and deductions. Like a dove! which is what Jonah's name means. Like a dove, Jonah's adventure has so far vacillated. But in the course of the events, the minds of the people are changed, just like wine is changed. And the redemptive process of God is revealed. Jonah's being equated with what his name means, dove. But the root of his name and the variations of it are being drawn together by God to tell us a story. Just as Jonah was the means by which these Gentiles have come to know and to fear Jehovah, So Jesus, as the fulfillment of the picture, is the means by which the Gentile world, once on the raging sea of chaos, is brought to the peaceful waters of rest in the knowledge of the true God. The sailors had seen the marvelous power of the Lord as it worked in relation to Jonah. The disciples with Jesus and the men aboard the ship with Paul had seen the marvelous power of the Lord as it worked in relation to Christ and the message of Christ. In each circumstance, the words of the psalmist are fulfilled. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 148. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his words. In order to affect his word in the lives of others, he even uses the elements to do so. And his bidding is completed and his word is fulfilled. Verse 16 continues, and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they sacrificed sacrifice to Jehovah. What the sacrifice was is not said, and thus it is not important what it was. It doesn't make any difference. And yet scholars will argue over this as if they were standing right there on the ship and watching these events unfold. Some argue that they had live animals on board and they used them as sacrifices. Some argue that no, they'd already thrown the cargo over and so that wouldn't be possible. It's all vain. It's all useless conjecture. In the Bible, the zebach, or sacrifice, is not limited to animals. They very well may have sacrificed animals on that ship, but it could be a meal offering. It could be a sacrifice of joy. It could be a sacrifice of a contrite and broken heart. It could be a sacrifice of righteousness, or it could be a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The word zebach is used to describe every one of those in Scripture. Whatever they chose to sacrifice, it was to the Lord and not to the false gods they once prayed to. They had, in essence, come to the foot of the cross to worship the true Lord of all. Verse 16 continues, and took vows, and vowed vows. The sacrifices were made as right now offerings to Jehovah. They were directed to him with hearts of contrition, in joy, with thanksgiving, and as a righteous oblation to him. The vows, on the other hand, were made as future conduct towards him. They were intended to bind them to the Lord from that point on, and to live for him as much as could be expected from men apart from the law. 
but who live now under God's grace. The man in the foxhole facing death will inevitably make vows to God. How many will he later act on? I once listened to a man who was in World War II. He saw another man ordered to move forward and to take out a machine gun nest. The guy charged forward and was shot almost immediately. As he lay there dying, he recited the words of the 23rd Psalm. The man in the foxhole asked the Lord to give him the same type of faith. And he made a promise to God that if he survived, he would dedicate his life to the Lord. When he arrived back in Texas, he planted numerous churches. But even after tirelessly working throughout his remaining years, he felt he had not done enough in repayment to the Lord. He had made a vow. He kept it. It's an important lesson for each one of us. We need to remember to fulfill our vows when we make them. This theme is repeated throughout the Bible, and it is something that God expects of us. Here's what it says in Psalm 76. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Were the book to end at this point, we could look at the story in one of two ways. That God's plans were thwarted towards the Ninevites because Jonah was cast over and died. Or we could look at it that God's plans were actually directed all along to those who sailed with Jonah, bringing them to salvation in the Lord. However, we need not speculate because this is not the end of the story. Instead, God's plan wasn't only for the men on the ship, but for those in Nineveh as well. In the Hebrew text, just so you know, Jonah chapter 1 ends with verse 16. Verse 17 actually starts chapter 2. How the oceans rage and the winds blow so strong. There is no way for us to safely reach the shore. When will come relief? The tempest will last how long? When will the waves die down to threaten us no more? It is as if God's wrath rests upon us as we sail on. Is there no way for the sea to be calm and still once again? Has God abandoned us? Is all hope gone? Is this our sad destiny and the fate of all men? No, for in one mighty act the seas have quieted and are still. When the Lord was cast into the turbulent sea, in his death Christ Jesus had fulfilled God's will and brought us once again to a place of peace and tranquility. Our second thought today is the deliverer. It's verse 17. Verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Veman Yehovah Dagado Livloa et Yonah and had appointed Yehovah fish whopping to swallow Jonah. There is a lot about this verse which is misunderstood or often mistranslated. First, the word here translated as had prepared is mana. It means to count. Thus the fish had been appointed, not prepared. Using prepared is misleading and it gives the sense of an act of creation. Rather, God had created and he has appointed his creation to act at certain counts or times in order to meet his needs. He employs his created agents in order to do his bidding according to his will. Secondly, the great fish here is incorrectly translated in the New Testament by some versions as a whale. This is unjustifiable and it is incorrect. The Hebrew word is dag. It indicates a prolific beast one that greatly multiplies, as is seen in fish, not in mammals. Great studies have been done on this, which if you want to learn more, just go browse the internet and you can learn all about that. This was probably a sea dog or a type of shark which is found in the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the scholar Kyle notes the following. Very interesting. Listen to this. In the year 1758, a sailor fell overboard from a frigate. 
in very stormy weather into the Mediterranean Sea and was immediately taken into the jaws of a sea dog and disappeared. The captain, however, ordered a gun which was standing on the deck to be discharged at the shark, and the cannonball struck it so that it vomited up again the sailor that had swallowed, who was then taken up alive and very little hurt into the boat that had been lowered for his rescue. Almost sounds just like the account we're reading right now. It's like God gave us a validation of his word in 1758. Jonah really was cast over the side, and a great fish really did swallow him whole. There is no reason to assume that in order to arrive at the antitype, meaning Christ, that the Lord would merely use an allegory to make his point. Rather, he used a real person with real circumstances to point us to the true fulfillment of what is now only pictured. The casting of Jonah over the side was symbolic of his death, and thus a picture of the death of the Lord. The calming of the sea was then a picture of the calming of the wrath against man, which is realized in Christ's death. The swallowing of Jonah by the great fish is not, as most scholars claim, a picture of his death, but of his delivery from his state of death. Just as Christ died on the cross and then was entombed, Jonah was swallowed by the fish after what would be considered his death. This will be seen very clearly in the coming chapter. Verse 17 finishes with these words. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And was Jonah in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What is the greatest tragedy of all? And which has led to innumerable and incorrect rabbit trails concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The words here are reflective of the Hebrew way of reckoning time. This in no way signifies complete days and nights of 24-hour duration, or thus a period of 72 hours. For example, in Esther 4, verse 16, we read this, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. But in Esther 5, 1, we then read this, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. It was the third day from the proclamation, not the fourth or even the fifth day from it. From the first page of the Bible onward, Hebrew has no single word to express what we would consider a natural day. The time here can express a whole day or part of one day or two days or whatever. We do this all the time in our own language as well. I might say that I will be out of town for three days when I leave on Monday afternoon and return on Wednesday morning. I was, in fact, gone three days, just not three full days. And if you count it, I was really only gone about a day and a quarter. I also might say that I have worked for 10 days, night and day, in order to finish a project. This doesn't mean that I worked the entire time, but that the entire time was consumed with my work. Okay, this is how Hebrew time is reckoned in the Bible. It is no different than how the Bible records such things. And the Jewish audience of Matthew, the book of Matthew, would understand this. The same account in the book of Luke concerning Christ's time in the tomb reads differently from Matthew because it is given to a different audience. This becomes important in correctly identifying the time and the day that Christ was crucified and the time and the day that he arose. Thirteen times. 
13 in the New Testament, it says that he rose on the third day. As he rose on a Sunday, the very simplest way to resolve this is to count back from the third day. Sunday is one, Saturday is two, Friday is three. However, though much more complicated, this timeline is confirmed through a proper study of the gospel records and which I will include at the end of the written sermon, which is available online and at no extra charge too, okay? When you're reading that analysis, I break it down very clearly and very succinctly, but I would like you to know that if you go to the term preparation day, it's a term which is used in all four gospel accounts, and I've never seen anybody do this. I just sat down and I was reading. I said, well, that same term is used in all four accounts. Go to the term preparation day and you can come to no other conclusion than that Christ was crucified on Friday. He was resurrected on Sunday. No other scenario works. Use the term preparation day and I've got it online. You can read it there. Understanding this, Jonah's time in the belly of the fish could have been less than 72 hours and yet still fulfilling the required sense of the Hebrew reckoning of time. What is important, again, is the type and the anti-type, all of which point to Christ. Everything about the narrative is giving us clues of other things, the work of Christ, the bringing in of the Gentiles to the Lord by mercy, grace, and faith, the stubbornness of Israel against the Lord, and the willingness of the Gentiles to receive him. Redemptive history is being revealed to us in a marvelous snapshot in the book of Jonah. It is as if a trial is being held. The ship becomes the courtroom. The sailors become the journey. The raging winds and the storm are the accusers. The Lord's prophet is the accused. The sea is the instrument and the pit of death. The fish is the deliverer from death and the womb of life. And behind it all is the hand of the Lord directing this beautiful story. If you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, a male or a female, if you're a businessman or a drug addict, if you're a prostitute or a housewife, no matter what your race, creed, or culture, you will also face a trial as an accused. You can face it alone, or you can face it with one who has already stood in your place, willing to take your sentence upon himself. The sailors found this out. They were given the word of the Lord, pick me up and throw me into the sea. For a time, they strived to save themselves, digging hard into the waves in order to return to the shore. That is works-based salvation, and it will only lead to greater rage from God, just as we saw in the story. But they finally yielded to his word, and they came to the cross where the innocent was to die for the guilty. They called out, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood. All men will be charged, all of us. But the question is, will it be in our own guilt or in Christ's righteousness? Only he is innocent. Their final words were, For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Only in the death of Jesus Christ, and I mean only in the death of Jesus Christ, is God pleased. Only he satisfied the works of the law perfectly, and only his death could cease the raging sea of disobedience and death, which has worked and whirled against man for countless ages. Only he, only he. Now the choice is yours. The sea is ceased from its raging for all who call out to him, but you must call and you must receive. Call out on Christ today and be reconciled to your heavenly father through his shed blood. God loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. There is no doubt about that. From the beginning of the Bible to the very last word, that is the intent. He sent a fish to save Jonah. 
He sent the completed work of Jesus Christ to save you. And so I'm going to be very clear and very succinct about what I want you to know. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every single person has sinned actively in their life. But they're already condemned, all people, because we have inherited sin from our first father. That's the premise of the Bible is that it's in us anyway. It doesn't matter if we are born and die a minute later or if we live 90 years and we die. We're already in sin and we are separated from our heavenly father. And God did something so wonderful for us. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He offers it as a gift. It's not something you can pay. It's not something you can work for by rowing through the deep waters. There's nothing you can do except receive a gift. And if you offer to pay for that gift after you've received it, then you're slapping God in the face and you're saying, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I, I won't receive it as a gift and I want to pay you for it. When you pay somebody for a gift, you offend the giver. And that's what going back to the law is. It's an offense to God. God wants us to simply have faith that Jesus Christ was sufficient to take away our sin debt. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And all you need to do, the only thing you need to do is call on the name of the Lord. I believe that I have sinned in my life and that has separated me from an infinitely perfect God. And I believe that that God sent his son into the stream of humanity to reconcile the two of us. And now this God man can put his hand on his infinite father and he can put his hand on finite you and he can be the bridge back that does not exist anywhere else in all of creation, in any other religion. No expression on this earth can take care of that debt except Jesus Christ. So if you have never called on him, I would ask that you would do it today, that you would say, I need Jesus. I accept Jesus. I receive him. And it says that you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the guarantee that you will be granted that eternal life that the Bible speaks of. And all of this pain, all the people that had to leave halftime today, after the prophecy update, we have four people that went home, I think, because they have bad pains in their back. They've got this problem. Man, poor Roy isn't here today. He comes in here and he's got his cane and he's in pain every day. I can't wait to see the day when I see him jumping up in heaven, rejoicing at the body that God is going to give him after the life of broken bones he's had and all of the trials and troubles. All of us, whatever trial you've had and whatever pain you've had, it's all going to be swept away. Great God, great God. But you must come to him the way that he decides, not through works, but through faith. And Jesus provides that. Call on him and be reconciled, okay? Our closing verse comes from Psalm 18. It's the 16th verse. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Next week is Jonah 2. We're into a new chapter now. It's verses 1 through 4. Yes, from out of the place where after he had died, it's entitled, Out of the Belly of Sheol, I Cried. That'll be our fifth Jonah sermon. And I'd like to tell you this. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Now I have a poem based on these five verses, and we'll be done. We'll take the Lord's Supper. It's called Peace from the Storm. Nevertheless, hard the men rode to return to land, their efforts almost furious, but they could not, as the events clearly showed, for the sea continued to grow against them more tempestuous. 
Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, we pray, and do not charge us with innocent blood when he is dead, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you here today. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging completely. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Surely they quivered and shook and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and also vows they took. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish, Jonah, to swallow. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There in the great fish's belly he did wallow. Lord God, it is we who have strayed from you. We have gone about our own way without a care. And yet ever faithful and true, you sent Jesus in order that us you might spare. He was cast into the pit of death so that we might live. What kind of love have you shown towards us? What a marvelous gift to us you did give when you sent your beloved son, our Lord Jesus. Now by our faith in him, we are reconciled to you and we are spared from being sent to the very pit of hell. And so we give you all of the praise, yes, all that is due for our Lord Jesus has done everything so well. Hear our praise and our voices full of thanksgiving. We have passed from the grip of death to the land of the living. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that every single word of your word continuously points us to Jesus. Because without that, I got to tell you what, my mind strays four billion times a day and I'm sure a couple other people in here feel the same. Their mind is all over the place and they're thinking on things that they probably shouldn't be doing. But you've given us your word to continuously refresh us and to continuously remind us of what you have done for us in the stream of human history. And if we can just remember the simple words, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, all will be well. We will be doing what is right and proper. Help us to remember that verse and to think on it. And as our mind starts going off in the wrong direction, to apply it once again to our lives and to do that, to fix our eyes on him, on his cross, on his resurrection, and on the promise which lies ahead of us when he comes to take us out of here. And what a glorious day that will be. What a marvelous day when we stand in your presence. And Lord, Please help us to fulfill our vows as we should. We are obligated to certain things with our tongues, and we often renege on those things. But help us to be people of integrity and to pay the vows that we do owe. And Lord, I would also pray for the three gentlemen that sent in those letters today, Sean and Derry and Bob, that each one of them would have their physical ailments taken care of by you and that they would be uh, led back to a state of right health. And for everybody else that's listening that's also suffering with their own troubles and trials, that you would be with them and help them, and each person in this building as well. We all suffer with something. We may not want to admit it, but we're all weak creatures, desperately needing your strength and your guiding hand. Be with us, and we will give you the praise that you're due. Help us to do this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.